Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Adam Klickfeld's weekly Rashi study class. We are a part of the way through a long, um, and it's not really complicated. It's just it's 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 a, it's a many a, a many references uh, Rashi. The point that he's making is actually somewhat uncomplicated, particularly for those um, who study a little bit of Hebrew grammar. What he's describing, we kind of know by either by being able to explain it or just by recognizing it. I want to read the verse to remind us of where we are and then jump into the Rashi. And then at some point, I'm going to put Joanna on the spot, who's basically done a master's thesis worth of research on this topic since the last class and has come up with some really interesting insights into why it might be that Rashi is spending so much time on what we might consider a rather small point. But let me let me rev us up. And I, I do promise that we'll get through this today and we can uh, put this put this chapter behind us literally and figuratively. So the verse is, is this 22nd verse of the four, third chapter of Exodus. We were so far away from the content as we've been discussing the grammar. Remind us the content. Uh, God says through Moshe that each woman, uh, each Israelite woman on the way out of Egypt will borrow, ask from her neighbor, and from the one who lives in her home. We won't go back into the different possible meanings of that. Instruments of silver and gold, and garments, will put them you will put them on your sons, and on your daughters. The Ni Tzaltem at Mitzrayim focused on the Ni, not because it's a Monty Python movie, we're not the knights who say Ni, but this is the verb that says Ni, the Ni Tzaltem at Mitzrayim, and you will blank the Egyptians, right? And from context, we know what it means. You will um, strip, remove from, take advantage of, exploit. Um, and, and what Rashi is arguing against and for doesn't change the meaning that much, right? It's either, according to the um, medieval grammarian that Rashi sometimes refers to, Menachem ben Saruk, the root is hey tzadi lamed or yud tzadi lamed or just tzadi lamed from the word that we know, lahatzil, to remove, to rescue, to save. So it's as if you're rescuing the stuff from the Egyptians so that it belongs to you. Or the root is nun which means to take advantage of or to exploit, right? Either way, we know what's going on. So this discursus that Rashi is involved in is not really changing the tone that much of the um, of the verse, but it's maybe setting up, and here I am setting up Joanna, setting up a principle that Rashi wants us to know so that when we come across this situation later on, we'll have memorized this, you know, 14-line Rashi and we'll know how to handle it. Um, so we're, I'm gonna I'm gonna say where we are in the Rashi. Then I'm gonna ask. Um, uh, no, actually, let's finish the Rashi and then Joanna. Uh, if, if you're comfortable, I'd love for you to share some of the insights you share with me in email because they were they were fascinating. And I'm amazed by what you have um, um, have come up with. And I'm gonna apologize to Joanna publicly that for some bizarre reason I started placing Joanna in Ottawa even though she's in Toronto. I have no idea why. And apparently for weeks I've been re- making reference to the fact that we have you know, students in Los Angeles and in Ottawa, Canada, and there's nothing wrong with Ottawa, but she's in Toronto. And I apologize to all the Torontonians that I may have insulted by suggesting that someone would move from Toronto to Ottawa. Okay, so where are we in the, in the Rashi? Rashi has told us what he thinks the word means. And now he has said that Menachem ben Saruk, this uh, previous medieval grammarian, says that this is from the root meaning 
Sal lehatzil yatzal to save or to rescue? And Rashi says no. And why is it a no? Because the vowel underneath the nun in our verse v'nitzaltem is a chirik, the dot saying an i sound, not the shva saying the two dot sound. And he basically says to us when verbs like the ones he is talking about Menachem ben Saruk are in uh, when when there's a chirik in those verbs, not a shva. It doesn't mean an active verb. It means a passive verb. It's suggesting that something has been happening to them, not they're the ones doing it. And so where we are is, I think, um, example number two or three with verbs that look like ours, that have a chirik underneath the nun, and basically Rashi proving that if you want to read it as being from a root where the nun is actually not part of the root, you are forced to read it passively. And the example we're at is Ezekiel, Ezekiel twenty-two twenty-one. So let me uh, pull that up. Okay. So in Ezekiel twenty-two twenty-one, um, we're not going to go into the context of Ezekiel, but we have this verse. This verse: "Vechi nasti etchem, I will gather you, beit knesset lichnos." I'm going to blow upon you the fire of my anger. That looks like our verb. Nun is the first, after the vav Nun is the first letter. The the vowel underneath the nun is an e, and there is no way to d- explain this other than to say that what's going that that the Israelites are going to be melted not by, by, by fire, not that you will melt, right? There's no way to say the nitachtem is you are going to, you are going to melt. It has to be, you will be melted, right? So if you will be melted, then this is another proof that, that when there's a chirik under the nun, that um, you have to understand it as passive if you want to understand the root as not having the nun be an essential part of it, okay? That was the one that we were on. I don't, um, I didn't actually assign a reader to this and I might as well because we're going to be going through this. Um, I don't know. Um, Matt, do you want to pick up at um, basically you're just going to read two word phrases from the Bible that I'm going to put the screen up. But why don't you be our reader? The one after Ezekiel, the Amar, Hold on a second. Uh, So similar situation, Jeremiah seven, verse 10. It's on your screen. Look at the verse. Um, You're going to come. Va'amaratem, and you're going to stand lefanai in front of me. Ba'bayat hazeh, and this, you know, capital B hout, capital B bayat. Asher nikrash mi alav, upon which my voice is, or my name is called. Va'amartem, and you're going to say ni tsalnu, right? It does not. There's no way to understand this verse other than to mean that you're going to say we're okay. We have been saved. Passive. We call it the nifal in our modern language of discussing Hebrew grammar. There's no way to understand that as we are doing the saving, right? So if you want to read that verse as having to do with saving, it's passive. If you want to read that verse as having to do with ex- exploiting, then sure. But that would mean that we exploited. doesn't make sense here, okay? So another proof text. Um, go back into the Rashi. Lishon nif'alnu. A pause. So when Rashi says the lashon nif'alnu, the way a modern gram- Hebrew grammar teacher would say, this is the binyan of nifal. This, all of these verbs 
are in the binyan of nifal, passive, where the the subject is having something done to it or to him or to her, not or to them, rather than active. So he doesn't use the word nifal. He he kind of almost conjugates the the, the name of the binyan to match the conversation. So he calls it a nifalnu. Okay, go ahead. Translate that again. <laughs> All right. Uh, and every noon that comes in the uh, the box, the teva, the ark. The word. It, it means something else. In, oh, in the word. Okay. And every noon that co- that comes in the word, lefakim uh, in pieces. Yeah, lefakim is an interesting um, uh, rabbinic word. It means occasionally. Occasionally. Okay. From, from time to time, as it were. Right. Uh, and drops out of it. Right. Okay. Like? Uh, for example, kenun shel no gev, no se, no ten, no shef. For example, the noon in uh, no gev is to, infe- to infect. Yeah, or to be a plague, right? Or to smell. Uh, no se, to, to, to carry. Pluripotent Hebrew verb to carry, to bear, to bless, to, to lift up. Right, that's parshat naso. That's yisa Adonai panave lecha. Then right. it falls out. Noten. Right, like it becomes yitain. And nosher to bite. Okay. So Rashi says, you reader know all these roots. They all begin with nun. He doesn't even have to tell us. Doesn't even have to give us examples where the nun falls out because he knows that we know or he assumes right. that we know. Right. All those. Kshehi. Kshehi medabert lishon ufa'altem tenaked bechatav. So when it is speaking in the way of ufa'altem, uh, and you worked. What, what would we call that if this was a modern Hebrew grammar class? When, when, that, when those roots are being used. Oh, that would be the, the active? The, that's, that's Rashi's way of saying pa'al. If you study the binyanim, the seven binyanim, this is Rashi's way of saying pa'al, except again, he conjugates it as in the form. So when these uh, words and words like them are in um, the form of, of pa'al, um, now here we have a, a very interesting um, little uh, a parentheses with the parentheses as a manuscript issue because I'm actually looking at three different Rashi's right now. The one you read says that, a- okay. that after the word tinaked, you have what word? Tinaked bechatav. You have tinaked bechatav. Which Rashi? Which Rashi are you looking at? Can you see the book? Safaria. Safaria. Okay, the one that we have. Um, in the Eitz Chaim, uh, the Torah Chaim is Tinaked Bishva Bechataf, which is weird mm. because it, it, it uses the word Shva, but spells the word Shva differently than we would. Shva is the, the two dots, right? Like the English vowel Shwa, right? Um, bechataf. And in the one, the other one I have, it doesn't have the word Bishva at all. It's just Bechataf. Sorry, it doesn't have the word Bechataf at all. It has Bishva. So whatever it is, it's, it's clearly Rashi's way of denoting these two dots, but apparently it hasn't always been referred to as a shva. It was referred to as a chataf, as in a chataf patach or a chataf kamatz, right? Whenever you have this vowel and two dots next to it, 
or the this vowel and two dots next to it. It's called a chataf patach or chataf kamatz. I feel like I'm in a nursery rhyme. It's more it's more understood as like a vowel. Chataf means to snatch away, right? So a vowel whose full vowelness has been snatched away, limited by the shva, but we refer to it as a shva. Okay, end parentheses. Basically, can you explain the short, the, brief, the very brief footnote. Please. No, no. Can, can you explain it? it just uh, the, the footnote in the Eitzchayim. I didn't look at it. Let me take a look quickly. Okay. I'll. I'll, I'll I, this is reading a cold. I didn't, I didn't look at this one. Kolomar, which is to say. No, no. Which footnote are you looking at? It's footnote, footnote one, and it's it's Yud Shifshuf Gimel. Oh. Yud Gimel means Yesh Gorsim. Some some versions of this text read it as Tinaked Bechataf. It's a manuscript comment. Yesh Gorsim. There's some who read it as yeah, just like just as I said, where in some versions of this, either the word Shva is missing or the word Chataf is missing. Joanna? Interestingly, the Safaria translation refers to this as the vocal shva. So I'm wondering if the use of the word hataf is specific to designate the shvana as opposed to the shvanach. That's really interesting. And for those who don't understand that distinction, these two dots, there are two versions of it, the shvanach, the resting shva, like the Two dots under the under the letter sin in Yisrael. It ends the vowel Yisrael, and the shvana, which is any time there's a shva at the beginning of a word, it's it's a it's a shva with a little bit of sound, right? You can't say like, like the word we're looking at v'ata. It's v'ata. You have to give it a little bit of a vowel sound, right? So you're saying that it's possible that this is Rashi's way of referring not just to the the shva, but the but the shvana. Um, interesting. What, the, what I, the, the Sotem has one of each, right? It's got the Shvana and the Shvanach. Yes, by coincidence, that word has one has one of each. Correct. The, the Shva under the Vav is a Shvana. It's a moving Shva. And the Shva under the Lamet is a resting Shva. Okay. So um, to go back to uh, Matt right, mm. and, and his reading, that Rashi is saying these roots, when there is a Nun, um, if if if, the, if the, it would have been active, it would have had a shva underneath it, maybe a shvana, and that was going to give us examples of these. Kigon, kigon, unesatem et avichem, bereshit meme. So look at this on the screen already. Genesis forty-five, verse nineteen. Viata suveti, you've all been commanded. Zot asu, now do it. Kichulechem meeretz mitzrayim. Uh, take kind of whatever you want from the land of Egypt, agalot letapchem, and wagons for your, you, you understand the context, this is the, the brothers uh, meeting Joseph without knowing it's Joseph yet, letapchem v'linshechem, wagons for your children and your wives, unisatem et avichem, go carry up your father, right? So nisatem um, has a shva underneath the nun, Right? It's not the nisatem, and that's mm-hmm. how it would be written for a three-letter root with the nun is part of the root, and it is um, active. Shva, not chirik. Okay? Okay. Unetatem lahem et eretz This is Parshat Matot. Um, 
chapter 32 of 29. Um, Vayomer Moshe Alehem. This is about the, um, the negotiations between the two and a half tribes that wanted to stay on the eastern side of the Jordan because there was a good flock area there and how they were going to agree to be chalutzim, right? The original uh, word chalutzim was not farmers wearing COVID tembels, but the shock troops that were going in to absorb the initial hits of the battle. Moses said to them, If the Gadites and the Reubenites go with you to the Jordan, to be a shock troop for war in front of God, and the, the land will be conquered in front of you. Look at the vow underneath the nun, it's a shva, it's a shvana, because if you are the ones who are giving them something, then it's got to be shvana, not a chirik. It's not the nitatem, that would have been you will be given. You're going to give them the land of Gilad as inheritance. Okay? Okay. Okay. Here we go in, um, in Breshit, um, as we understand the commandment of Brit Milah. You will circumcise the flesh of your foreskins. Not that you will be circumcised. I mean, you will be, but that's not what the verb means. Same vowel. Shva uh, under the nun, it's active, it's pa'al, or as Rashi would say, it's in the language of ufa'altem, and that's how it would have had to be, Rashi is saying to Menachem ben Saruk, if our verb was going to be understood in, um, uh, in, the, in, the, in the way he, uh, Menachem ben Saruk is. Okay? ani omer min Okay, do, do, do shorter phrases at a time, so therefore... And thus I say that this uh, sign, quantization, uh, I guess, is, is basic. Uh, Rashi's word for shoresh is yesod, so he's basically saying that, that the word zot, that that is referring to the nun, that that which has which has a chirik underneath it, in our word, the nitzaltem, mm-hmm. is part of the yesod. The nun is part of the root. Oh, it's part of the root. I see. Okay. The yesod shem devar nitzul, and the root is the name of the thing that saved. Right. What he's basically saying is that, that in case reader, you're not aware of it, not only is the root that Menachem ben Saruk talking about, Yatzal lehatzil, a root, also Nun Tzadi Lamed is a root in and of itself. It's its own word, right? That's what I think means by Vyasod Shem Devar. This root is its own thing. And what is the thing? The thing is Nitzul, exploiting or taking advantage of or stripping, right? Then we have okay. to go from grammar to translation, vehu, vehu min halshonot hakvedim, and this is from the usage of he- the heavy ones. Right, heavy ones um, is Rashi's way of referring to. I know that we're so deep in the grammatical weeds. A three-letter roots where the middle letter gets a dagesh in certain forms. Um, wow. So. Um, um, 
like the ones he's about to give us. So where the middle letter becomes hardened with, uh, with a, a full digation in certain forms, particularly in the PL. Okay, go ahead, Kamo. Kamo, Tibur, Kippur, Limud, Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, do you want to tra- translate? Or, like, for sure. example, divorce, speech, Kippur, is that like, I'm not that, I don't know what that is. Yom Gambling? Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, Limud, studying. Right. Keshe Yedaber, Bilushon, Ufa'altem. So that when you speak uh, with the usage of Ufa'altem, so that's also the grammatical form. Uh, of pa'al. So pa'al. When, when these roots, which are called kfedim roots, when in it, we've moved from the discussion of whether or not the nun is the first letter to him putting right. this root in its larger taxonomy, three letter roots, which, um, who's maybe the gerund is dibur, kipur, uh, um, right. limud, with a hard uh, dagesh dot in the middle one. When you want to put them in pa'al, right, um, right. active, Go ahead, Yenakid. Right. right. Okay. You so will now we're back. Yeah. Now we're back to some exa- examples. Um, look back at the screen. So now that we've established that the nun is part of the root and it's part of a larger family of words that when you put them in pa'al or sometimes pl, uh, the second letter has a dagesh. If you want to make it an active, you've got to put. Um, uh, a chirik under the letter, not a shva. So let's look at these examples. This mm-hmm. is chapter 20 of the Midbar, verse 8. Kachatamate, take this um, staff, hakel et ha'eda, and bring the community together. Atav yaron achicha, you and Aaron, your brother. Vedi bartem el hasela, speak to the rock. You know exactly what scene mm-hmm. this is. And it's it's not, um, it's not, um, it's not dibartem, it's dibartem, active, um, Act, active and it's that family of roots. Go ahead. Okay. Another Ezekiel quote. Ezekiel 45 uh, verse 20. This is what you should do on the seventh day of the month. Um, to, in, in order to cleanse the temple from um, a, a, a silly or unwise person, vowel under the chaf is a chirig, and the ia vowel uh, forms, not ua-e, I know that sounds funny to say it, but ia like ours, remember, is ni saltem, ia active, the first letter is part of the root, you're doing the thing to something, you are um, atoning or cleansing the bayat, the house. Right. Right. This is from um, the second paragraph of the Shema, chapter 11 of Dvarim, verse 19. You shall teach, you shall teach them. These are not roots where Nun is the first letter. These are a larger family of roots, no matter what the first letter is, where in this form, if they're being, if it's an active concept, it's an E-A-E. Um, construction. Okay. And that ends the comment to Rashi. So Rashi has spent an enormous time um, walking us through what this verb is, what this verb isn't, 
has not changed a whole lot of the meaning, sets up a um, like a framework, hopefully, that will help us understand it in the future. And then he doesn't wrap it up. He doesn't like give a sermonette at the end. He just says, okay, now, now you know it, on to the next verse. So I'm going to tee up Joanna, and I'd love for you to share some of what you shared because I was really, I didn't have time to respond to the email, but I was so fascinated by what you came up with, and the floor is yours. Um, so me being me, I was intrigued by, you know, why is Rashi doing this? It was sort of egging at me a little bit, like it's one too many proof texts, one too many verses, why he feels the need to do this. And where that got me to was um, first to learn a little bit about um, our new friend Menachem. And from there, um, a little bit about some major biblical grammarians and the development of biblical grammar. And I think it sheds light on what's going on here. So just to share very briefly, um, this machberet that um, has been referred to of Menachem's was simply a dictionary of Hebrew roots as he understood them. And Menachem's theory, which is now clearly discredited, we know is not true, but his theory was that for a letter to be part of a root, it has to be present in every verb conjugation, in every form of speech. If you add a prefix or a suffix to the word, it must be there. So that led to Menachem developing a theory that Hebrew roots could have one, two, or three letters because they must be in the word at all times in every form. Along comes another grammarian, Dunash, who um, is born in North Africa, but eventually makes his way to Spain, which is where Menachem is. They meet and they develop a rivalry. And in particular, Dunash critiques about 200 entries in in Menachem's dictionary. So that is to say, like, it's one thing if you criticize one entry, like you're basically in agreement, but some significant disagreement. Um, and so the other thing that's important to, to notice um, of what happens, this came up last week also, someone was asking about what does Rashi know and, you know, who was in his sphere of influence. Rashi clearly knew of either people who were in Spain or got to Spain, but did not know of North Africans and did not have comprehension of Arabic which is significant for two reasons, because Arabic grammatical structure, which had already been kind of figured out, is um, very much related to Hebrew. So the Arabic speakers are the ones who are starting to get a grasp on Hebrew grammar. Um, And huge in particular in relation to a guy that I had never heard of until I went down this rabbit hole, Judah ben David Hayuj, who basically is the um, grandparent, if you will, the, the, the first to develop the Hebrew grammatical system. And um, as we know it today, everything from we know about grammar is based on his work until our own day. So significant for our discussion, what he develops is the the three-letter root system as we know it today, and this whole concept of weak roots where um, letters may fall away in certain conjugations. While um, he is 
just ahead of Rashi's time, because he's from Africa and because he speaks Arabic, Rashi does not know of his work. And what appears to be happening in Rashi is Rashi, in essence, is here um, and elsewhere, starts to develop on his own some of the very same ideas as um, Hayuj did. Um, and the other significant thing to note is um, Hayuj is fascinating because while he's from North Africa, he does end up in Spain. He dies um, after he passes away, Ibn Ezra comes on the scene, but Ibn Ezra becomes a student of his works. And everything Ibn Ezra does is basically to take Hayuj and A, translate it into Hebrew, but he's too late for Rashi, and then further develop his ideas. And from there, everything we do about Hebrew grammar today is based on that. So with all of that, what you come to is, you know, we sitting here in the 21st century, look at this. And I mean, even those of us who have the barest understandings of Hebrew grammar, take it for granted that there are three letter roots and that there are weak verbs. And there's such a thing as a pay nun verb, verbs that start with the letter nun as the first letter of the Shoresh. At the time Rashi is writing this, these are possibly new concepts and possibly as a biblical commentator, I was hoping to find someone who would say this clearly and I haven't, but I think that quite possibly Rashi is introducing this concept for the first time. So now that's a whole different spin. If you are proposing an idea for the first time, you've got to go through a lot of work to defend and prove what you want to say, as opposed to, you know, for us 21st century biblical students who, you know, accept some of this, you know, for granted with no question. So some people on the Zoom are thinking to themselves, how many minutes can we possibly spend on a chirik and a shva and a root? And if you're built like me, you're thinking, can we do three more hours of just this? Because this is an unbelievably interesting rabbit hole to just imagine. Like we we talk and write about um, Eliezer ben Yehuda's masterful reinvention of the Hebrew language. And we take for granted, as Joanna said, I just hadn't thought about this so much, that before ben Yehuda, there were there were other inventors or or um, canonizers, not only of the text itself, but of the language, right? The language developed organically, right? You know, in the, in, you know, three, five, eight, nine thousand years ago, they weren't sitting down saying, should this be a chirik or a shva? It just develops. And then someone has to systematize it after the fact. So it's fascinating to get a little window into the conversations back and forth between Rashi and his influences and, 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 Rashi, what, what Joanna is contending, and I can't wait for her to write her article about this, is not just that Rashi is representing that grammar, but is crafting it on some level. I, I, I'm totally taken by that idea, and I never had thought about that as a possibility. Um, Rick, and then Matt, and then we're going to uh, get off this verse. Hi. Um, so I found that uh, Rashi also knew um, Asher, uh, ben a- Aharon Ben Asher, the, uh, the last Masoret who who set with Shlomo ben Buya uh, uh, the uh, the trope, and uh, that's what's in the Damascus, the Aleppo scroll, uh, the dots and the notes and the the trope um, that was set down about the same time. And Rashi knew about it because I think he he quoted him uh, in different places. Um, I I also wanted to 
bring up because I read ahead um, how Rashi treats the same word later, if I could. Um, in in 12, uh, 1236, it's a nice um, little sentence. Um, I just like the mathematics. The, the 12 and 36 is three times that, and 36 is two times chai. But anyway, there you have Vayinatzlu at Mitzrayim, and there Rashi says nothing. Um, he says the Targum translates this as Verokinu, which we already saw a little. I, I missed it last week. If you did it, the very beginning of this whole Rashi, um, he quotes Unclus uh, emptying out um, up there. But I missed that. But but there, it's not Venit Saltem, it's Vayinatzlu. Um, at Mitzrayim. So I just thought I'd throw that in there. Yeah, I think the first time we looked at this verse, which is now two classes ago, oh. we, did, we did look at the Uncleus, and Uncleus, um, Uncleus doesn't, doesn't really, is not really a machria, not really a, a, a decisor between the two possible readings here, because the two possible readings on a content level are so similar. He, he understands it as, as emptying it out from. Right, Lerokain, probably more like Linatzel to exploit rather than Lahatzil to remove, but but it's hard to know. It could be that Uncleus was actually agreeing with Menachem ben Sarup, but but we don't really know from, from just that one word. Larry Diane, and then uh, oh Matt was next, sorry, and then Larry Diane. All right, this is just sort of a personal thing. You know, uh, you said it would be fun to spend three hours on the Shva. Uh, which reminded me of our departed dear friend, uh, Rabbi um, Ronnie Cohen, who long before he was a rabbi, he was a graduate student in linguistics in the 70s at Columbia. And he spent two years working on a thesis about the Shva. And at the end, after back and forth with the professors and and so on, uh, at the end, after two years, he realized that there was something wrong with his theory about the Shva. And he said to hell with it and dropped out of graduate school. So there's a certain point at which you have to stop worrying about the schwa and move on to other things. I, I wish I were better with a, a perfect pun for the, to respond to that, but I, I, I can't think of it. Ronnie was a pun, sir, yes. Um, thanks, thanks for that. And thanks for uh, reviving a memory of Ronnie who's, who's dearly missed. Um, I think of him every, uh, the, the, the route we take to walk our dog, walk right by his house. So I think of him three times a day. And those of you who came to the community later and, and didn't get to know him, you missed a very a very special guy, um, who I don't know if you just mentioned this, but he was he was also an accountant, right? He was an he was an accountant. He became an accountant. Yeah. yeah. So he 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 loved the specifics numerically, and he loved the specifics, um, right. you know, on a vowel level. Larry, Diane. So my this is sort of a question and a comment. So are we to understand from all of the things that Rashi said? that this is, in fact, a, a kind of a command, and you shall um, despoil, strip, whatever, the Egyptians exploit. Yeah? Is that... It's not... Um, I think that Rashi would say that it's, that it's not in a tzivui command form. It's in a future tense pa'al active form, saying that you will. It's, it's more like a prediction than a command. I, I, but those two things are very similar when someone in authority is speaking to you. If someone in authority is speaking, say, you know, you will take this to the, to the, to the post office and mail it by three. 
That's both a prediction and a command. But I think grammatically speaking, he's saying this is this is um, the the future tense verb in a vavaipuch form of a of a simple active form, and not necessarily a tzivui. So I'm I'm wondering if this is though kind of a moral statement, which is that the Egyptians actually owe you this because of your servitude, and you are in some sense saving them by forcing them to to make restitution, as it were. Say that again. I'm not following. Because so, you're using the word save there intentionally because save is the way that Menachem ben Saruk was reading the verb, or is that a coincidence? No, no, no. I, I, I am. Um, and you, basically you're saying Rashi says it's not saved, right, in this case. But I'm, one, I'm wondering if, if you think about it as save, are we making a moral statement about the obligation of the Egyptians? Yeah. I, th- I feel like someone said a version of this last week and I was compelled by the notion of it, even though I don't think it's a shot reading of it. I was compelled by rereading um, the sense of, 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 of savior into what the, the, an active way that the Israelites are impacting the Egyptians by redeeming the wealth that they acquired, right? This is, it gets very modern on the backs of the slave of the Israelites. Right. By the Israelites taking it back, they're actually giving back some sense of dignity to to Egyptians who otherwise would always be um, always be judged as having done the exploitation. So it, it's it's a, it's a playful idea. I don't know. Rashi certainly doesn't agree with that, and I'm not even sure Menachem Ben Saruk was reading it that way because that would actually have to read beneath Saltem, both meaning to save and not to exploit, and in the active, not in the passive, right? That you, that you will somehow save Egypt and and the vowels don't work out there but it's still an interesting idea. I have a question for Joanna. And, and that's, you, you said that Rashi didn't know of the work of uh, Judah ben David Ayuj, but because he was in Africa, but he was in, he was in Fez, Morocco, which at the time would have been the same as being part of Spain. It would have been, it's part of the, uh, whatever the, uh, the, the Islamic um, state was, was then. But he also moved, I'm reading this, now I'm reading in Wikipedia, he moved to Cordoba at a, at a young age. And, and that's where Menachem, Menachem was as well. So are you suggesting that, that Hayuz wrote only in Arabic and that the rest of them were writing in Hebrew? Because I would imagine that in the vernacular, you know, their, their daily lives, they all would be speaking in Arabic. Yes, so that is one of the things that I tracked is which language people wrote in. So Ben Saruk and Ben Labrat, uh, sorry, so that is to say um, Menachem and Dunash um, both um, wrote in Hebrew. Um, And amongst other grammarians that I looked at, there seems to be a pattern, and this is stated by other people that I looked at, that Rashi was not familiar with people who were living in what we today know as North Africa and Arabic. And Hayuj is interesting because he did travel to Spain, which is huge because of the fact that that's where Ibn Ezra is, right? So even though Ibn Ezra is born later, that's how Ibn Ezra comes to know of his works. Um, But so even though he ended up in Spain, the Arabic was still a barrier and Rashi did not know of him. Thank you.
The other thing I wanted to say um, in response to what you just brought up, Diane, is the fact that the particular verb we're looking at starts with a nun is what throws in some confusion. Because if Menachem is correct and the Shorish is to save, then we have to ask ourselves what the nun is doing there. And the nun is the indicator of the passive voice. So I think what Rashi's point is, is not to argue about, is it active or command, but is it active or passive? So Rashi's point is, A, it's a three-letter root, and it's active. Don't look at this nun as, as an indicator of the passive voice. Joanna, you know, the weather's much nicer in L.A. than Toronto. And not to, not to mention Ottawa. <laughs> ah, sports teams are also better. <laughs> okay. I believe we first got to, started reading this Rashi towards the middle end of two sessions ago. We've now spent almost two full sessions on it. And um, I, wanna, I, I almost kind of want to ring a bell and wake everyone else up. Class is now starting. Uh, and now we're going to go on to the, to the next verse. Um, just a heads up that I'm speaking at an online session um, at exactly 9.30. So I'm going to have to end this class at like 9.25, 9.26 to get off the Zoom and start that one. I need to kind of set that up. So we're going to end. Can I just say Yasha Clark, Joanna? That was amazing. Just yeah. absolutely amazing. Totally agree. Totally agree, Joanna. So much so that, like, it, like you know, um, history only goes in one direction. So this happened. But I, I, I can't imagine how much less we would have enjoyed and understood this verse had we happened to have gotten here before you were part of this class. So thank you so much. Uh, for doing that research and sharing this. And I, and, I, and I want you to write it up. I want you to write, to write it up somewhere. Okay. Uh, Matt, I, I need to give you another verse because that was, that was just brutal and, and, and not particularly satisfying. And I think you're going to get two verses depending on how far we get because Rashi doesn't speak until the second verse. And we usually go, the reader goes until get, he or she gets a Rashi. So chapter four of the book of Shemot, moving right along, Vaya'an. Uh, okay. Vaya'an Moshe. Uh, Ya'an, is that like from the answer? He spoke up? Something like that. Ya'an Moshe v'yomar and said, v'hen lo ya'aminu li, and what if they don't believe me? V'lo yishme'u b'koli, and they won't hear my voice. Ki yomru, and they will say, or they would say, lo nir'ah alecha Adonai, that God did not appear to you. Good. So a couple of things to um, as, before we kind of go into it deeper. Yes, vaya'an is the root ayin nun hey, which means to answer, like ze'eli anu v'yamru. They, they, they repeated and they, they said in, um, in biblical song, um, some scholars believe that it's specifically referring to an antiphonal um, presentation where I say something, you say something, I say something, you say something. Bata'an um, Miriam, that, that Miriam was engaging everyone at the sea in a back and forth response. It's also the root from which that great Midrash in, um, in the Haggadah, that the wise are called Lechem Oni, the matzah is, is Lechem Oni. It's not just the bread of affliction, but it's the, le, it's the bread of answers. It's the bread upon which we ask questions and give good mm-hmm. answers. Right. So uh, we've, we've been in a very long soliloquy by God. And now finally, Moshe answers, not antiphonally. They're not going back and forth. It's just literally here, the word answer. I, I was fascinated by your interjection, which may or may not be shot of the what if, because the vehane is not necessarily a what if. You translated it, Matt, as 
Moses said to God, what if they do not believe me? Which is a softer translate, a softer um, response by Moshe than what I think the word more, 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 more plainly suggests was, but behold, they're not going to believe me. Not mm-hmm. a what if they don't, but, but a, a, a near certainty that they will not, right? Now, all this is guesswork because we, we don't know exactly what behain means. And hain is part of hine, uh, behold, here. And is this a hesitating response or is this a, there's, there's no way it's going to happen. So in a second, we'll look at some um, uh, translations of it and see what other. Yeah, I, have, I, I have to say that I think that what I, I translated I have to think that the, what if if you want to ask though Safari translate it, translate it uh, translates it as what if they do not believe me I heard I didn't hear the first two sentences you just said though so can you say that the first two sentences again you went you went oh, out I'm saying that that, I, that the, the what if I think comes from Safari not from me I see so let let's look at some others um, JPS translates it in our Chaim Humash. And I had it, but now I, I turned the page. Um, oh, th- so that's JPS. And But Moses spoke up and said, interesting, JPS interjects not only a, um, a what if, but a but. That vav ha'ipuch, he turns into a, a, a but. Mm-hmm. Moses spoke up and said, what if they do not believe me and do not listen to me, but say the Lord did not appear to you? Question mark. Right? That's JPS. Everett Fox. Moshe spoke up, comma, he said, colon, but they will not trust me. More plain, right? That it's 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 a it's not gonna happen, God, and will not hearken to my voice. Indeed, they will say, Yah Yudhe Bavhe has not been seen by you, has not has not been revealed to you. So Everett Fox takes it more plainly. Let's hear some others. I'm always interested particularly in in the R.A. Kaplan translation. So Larry, Dan, do you want to read your, your two favorites, the Altar and the Kaplan? Sure. <clears throat> Kaplan is the most interesting, of course. <clears throat> he, he puts in a bracket, in a brackets, but there's no, there's no note about it. So here's what it says. When Moses, bracket, was able to, close bracket, reply, mm. so it's kind of inferring that he was like shaken or something. Yeah. <clears throat> or, or waiting or something. He, mm. So that's to say, was waiting is a good good observation. Um, but they will not believe me. They will not listen to me. They will say God did not appear to you. And Alter says, and Moses answered and said, "But look, they will not believe me, nor will they heed my voice, for they will say the Lord did not appear to you." Can I just make one comment? And it may be wrong. If you go back to the beginning of chapter three. And you read straight through. Every time Moses speaks, he says the same thing. He says, but first of all, he says, talk about Pharaoh. But why will Pharaoh listen to me? Then he says, but the elders will ask, what's your name? And now he's saying, but they will not believe me. So the whole thing is one long dialogue with Moses saying, but who am I? No one's going to take my word for it. He doesn't want the job. Right. He doesn't believe it can be successful. And either he's... He's, he's modest or he's the modest man who doth protest too much or he doesn't. And it's also unclear. Does he not believe in himself or does he not believe in them? Right. And Rashi is going to quote a Midrash on the next verse that, that 
giving away the story a little bit, that's going to chastise Moshe, not for his lack of belief in himself, but for his lack of belief in, um, uh, in the people. Uh, Micha Goodman went, gave a class last summer on the book of Jonah. Every, every time Micha looks at a new book of the Bible, I feel like I'm reading it for the first time. And he, he made a very interesting comparison between Jonah and Moshe, two reluctant prophets. And in his beautiful turn of phrase, he said, Moshe didn't want the job because he feared he would be unsuccessful. And Jonah didn't want the job because he feared he would be successful. Right? Moshe didn't want the job because he believed that they wouldn't listen to him. And therefore, they, that it would, be a, it would be a failure. And Jonah didn't want the job because he feared they would listen to him. They would repent and then they would never really pay a price for having been um, disobedient to God in the first place. It's such an interesting contrast on the hesitancies of Moshe and Jonah as they were tapped on the shoulder to be a prophet. So here, Moshe, you're right. He keeps, if we, what, what is it? The, the Jefferson, Jefferson's Bible took out all the commentary and just um, uplifted Jesus's words themselves, right? And, and everything else got crossed out kind of. Um, he, took, he took out all the um, supernatural events in the Bible. Right. Um, so if we just isolate Moses's words over these chapters, you see a guy who d- doesn't want to be there, doesn't want to go to Egypt, doesn't think it's going to work, and is showing both a lack of trust in himself and of them, the re- of the redeemer and the and the redeemed to be. Yeah. Um, Norm, and then Renee, and then Rebecca. Um, Zilberman translates it just like you did. Uh, Moshe answered and said, but behold, they won't believe me, nor hearken to my voice, and they will say Adonai has not appeared to you. And uh, there it is. Right. So, um, so far, the only one that translates it as a what if is the JPS. I would love to interview them and ask them what was was animating that decision. Renee? Um, Saperstein says, Moses responded and said, but they will not believe me and they will not heed my voice for they will say Hashem did not appear to you. And Everett Fox says, Moshe spoke up. He said, colon, but they will not trust me and will not hearken to my voice. Indeed, they will say, yud heh vav has not been seen by you, dot, dot, dot. Yeah. Exclamation. And um, before we get to Rebecca and Barry, just a note, a note that that we kind of glossed over this, there are two verbs in the beginning of this sentence when there could have been one, right? Maybe that, that, that kind of speaks to what you were saying. Was it Larry who was reading? I forgot already. The, the one who said when he was finally able to speak. Arya Kaplan. Arya Kaplan, right? Vaya'an Vayomer. He answered and he said, well, Vayomer would have been enough and Vaya'an would have been enough. What is the Vaya'an and Vayomer together, right? Is this just like a, like a, you know, he, he, he mustered up the ability to give an answer to God, and this is the content of the answer, right? Uh, Ever Fox, an interesting note just on that, spoke up and said, Ever Fox writes, this coupling of verbs is common in Ugaritic and Hebrew to denote a new thought on the speaker's part, that rather than it be just the next, the next step in the exchange, it's as if something new is popping up, which is so interesting when you think of what Larry just offered, which is that it's not new at all. It's actually Moshe's trope throughout this entire stretch. Uh, Rebecca? Um, so I have two thoughts about the hen. One is that it also means yes or agreement. Mm-hmm. And so it could be Moshe sort of agreeing with himself again that they won't believe him. Um, but my other thought was if you just read the, um, the sentence before, 
if God is talking about the women going to their neighbors and uh, and and taking uh, their gold and silver and so on, and then if you could read the hen as a plural female hen, in which case he's answering, and the women will not believe me. In which case it's very a very direct you know response to the previous sentence. Um, that, 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 that's lovely and playful. Um, I really, I really do like it. It would grammatically, it would force the um, the let the yaminu to have a taf in the front, but tamina it would be that na ending. But I, I love the the evocativeness of the hen as a they. Um, you're reading the hen as a yes is also interesting. It reminds me this is going to be like such a such a obscure not such a an odd reference in Novaraji class. One of my favorite comics is Gary Gullman. Jewish guy, really funny from the Boston area, very clean and very witty and, and like really smart stuff. Like his, his stand-up routines are in some ways lectures uh, and they're, they're beautiful. Um, and he has a whole stretch on the, on the phrase of, yeah, no. When someone says, yeah, no. And um, uh, the Vahane low, you're almost reading as, yeah, God, but no, they're not going to believe me. Yeah, I hear you, but it's not going to happen. So uh, uh, to, if you want four minutes to treat yourself, look up Gary Goldman. Yeah, no. Uh, I think it's in his Trader Joe bit, if you, if you can't find it anywhere else. Uh, Barry, and you might probably be our last contributor today because I'm going to have to get off early, as I said. So uh, just thinking um, on, on, on the bright side of Moshe, uh, he's a, a strategic thinker. I mean, he's, he's, he's a shepherd, but he's a strategic thinker. He needs a, he needs a backup. Uh, before I go into this, um, what's, what's, what's my backup going to be? Good, good. So one wants to make sure if, it, if plan A doesn't happen, what's plan B? So that that's the first verse of the fourth chapter. And we'll, let me just read the next verse very quickly. It's a short verse. Uh, and then we'll do the Rosh on it next week. Um, by, actually, you know, Matt, you read it. You, you, you're our reader. So finish it off quick, quickly. Vayomer elav adonai ma'zeh vayomer mateh. Okay. And God said to him, what is that in your hand? And he answered, uh, uh, a staff. Good. And just to set up where Rashi is going to go on this, this is one of the places in the Torah where you have a Kri and a Kativ, or it's actually not exactly a Kri Kativ. It's just two different, it's, it's sort of a Kri Kativ, where, where it's, it's written um, um, in Mem, Zion, Hey in the Torah, but it's also understood as two words, ma ze. So I don't know what, depending on which version you're looking at, what does it say in the, uh, in the, mine, mine has mem, zayin, hey, and then ma, dash, and ze are separately in both bracketed. Right. So Rashi is going to, going to go into the question of one word or two words, and then just notice that, um, the two halves of the verse, um, have the word maz, if maze is one word, which normally wouldn't be, then ma, it has maze and mate, which is, ba- they're basically like the same construct, just changing a, um, a consonant in the middle of it. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.